Morning. Everything working. All right. It has been a uh, little bit of a roller coaster of a week for me, and I'm hoping it'll stop and get back to the gate, and then we can can move on. <clears throat> we are in First Corinthians chapter eleven, verses two through sixteen. I've I've entitled this. Seems like a lot of fuss over hair. Um, I guess it's even more apropos when you realize I've been bald for the last 25 years. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, but I think about this, and it, and it does. As we get into this, as we, we dive into this scripture, it is going to be something that, that feels very out of context for us in, in, the, in a 21st century church. And so we're going we're gonna to try to deal with this within our, within our culture. You know, we talk, there's a, called the hermeneutic bridge, where you've got to take everything from context, 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 from scripture and kind of bring it over and they're going to be trying to trying to do that and and i pray that i've done it faithfully and i've done it well for us to kind of understand what paul's uh, getting at here as he's writing to the church in corinth and then us as well so let's go ahead and dive into uh first corinthians chapter 11 verses 2 through 16 if you got your bible open up there if not it's on the screen you can check it out Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors God. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair short or to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man has not, I'm sorry, verse 8, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man, Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of angels, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of a woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, is it her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Bow with me for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I just come to you thanking you this day for uh, tricky passages of Scripture. I pray, Lord, that as we, we enter into this, that, that you would be um, honored, you would be glorified, that the word would be rightly divided, that you would put me aside and, and allow the, the teachings here to be of you. Father, we pray that as we, we dive into this, that you would speak to our hearts, you would challenge us, you would convict us. And in all of these things, we ask that you would allow us to glorify you, honor you, and exalt your name as we seek to proclaim the gospel in all that we do. 
It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so as we're entering into chapters 11 through 14, the word starts to address issues about our conduct during corporate worship. And the first issue here is one of married women praying and prophesying in corporate worship without a head covering. That's weird, right? That just feels weird. Like this is a difficult passage for the church in the United States to really understand. And it seems really disconnected from our current lives, right? But this passage is rich with implications for us today. Uh, And I know it feels weird and possibly outdated as we read it. Um, But all scripture is God-breathed. And it is for our benefit. Even passages about our clothing and hair length, right? Now, things may not translate real easily into modern situations the same way. But principles will apply here, right? This passage is, is really about the manner in which husbands and wives carry themselves um, during corporate worship. Do they carry themselves in a manner that visibly displays God's glory in their life or not? Do they carry themselves in a manner that reflects the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, right? I think back to, to like any time I read this, I kept going to Ephesians chapter 5. And, and in, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul's talking about husbands and wives and wives submitting to husbands and husbands submitting to Christ and, and all these things. And he says, and I know this is a profound mystery, but I'm speaking about Christ and his church. Well, in here he's speaking about Christ and his church as well and, and how that works for us. And, and we've got to kind of stop and think here a little bit, too, about what a woman's head covering within the first century Roman society meant, right? A woman's head covering in first century Roman society, when Paul was writing this letter to the Corinthians, the people that were living in first century Roman society, the Corinthian church, this was a sign of her marriage, right? This is a practical concern here about husbands and wives and their relationships and, and, and it also is kind of look at who holds authority and leadership within the home. And Paul's addressing those issues through this, this head covering thing. Right? It, it also shows us the proper order of authority as God created authority within the universe. God is the authority of Christ. Christ is the authority of the husband. The husband is the authority of, of the wife. And we're all going back to God the Father. Right? It, it, it's all going that direction. He's the ultimate authority here. And as this is being laid out for us, it's something important for us to see here. God is the head of Christ. Now, Paul says that, right? Uh, right at the end of verse 3, and the head of Christ is God. God is the head of Christ. But, but aren't God the Father and Christ the Son, the same essence. It's one God. Aren't they both equally God? Different persons of the Trinity, but equal in all respects. And the answer to that is yes. Right? All persons of the Trinity are equal in their deity. Right? Father, Son, Spirit. They're equal in their deity. They're equal in all of their attributes. Equal in their power. Equal in their essence. But they have different roles to fulfill. And Paul's talking about that here. Now, there's a, there's a fun little video that we, we watch and pass around amongst us sometimes. It's, it's, it's from Lutheran satire, and it's about these two little guys in Ireland trying to explain St. Patrick and, and his descriptions of 
uh, of, of the Trinity, and it's, oh, Patrick, you've got that wrong there. And, and, they're, and they're making these jokes all the time because every earthly definition of the Trinity is going to tend to fall short. God is three distinct persons with one unique essence, right? And this passage gives us a glimpse into the relationship between the Father and the Son. In verse 3, we see that. We see the Father is the head of the Son. God the Father has authority over the Son. The Father, Son, and Spirit are equal in every way, yet they are unique persons with unique roles. And Paul uses that example of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit and, and the authority between God the Father and God the Son, he's using that example here, and he's using that truth, and he's applying it here to men and women, specifically to the relationship between husbands and wives. There is equality of being, there is equality of value, but there is difference in roles between husbands and wives. And that's what Paul's, Paul's pointing out here, right? That, that there's, there's nothing any less equal about Leah than me. There's nothing of any less value about Leah than me. But she has clearly def, different roles within our family. And I'm not talking about washing dishes because whenever they're dirty, it's my job too. That's not what we're getting at here. And trust me, she doesn't want me doing her laundry. She makes me do my own, right? This isn't, this isn't that sort of roles within the family. But it's, it's roles in how we minister even within our own families. These are the, the unique roles that, that, that is being described here, right? So we see these roles being played out. Christ's role as head of the church and as its savior is the same globally. Right? Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the savior of the church, and that's the same globally. The headship of a husband in a relationship to his wife is the same within the church globally as well, right? That that's what he's calling for. The husband is called to lead within the family. Now, this is Christ-centered leadership. This is self-sacrificing leadership from the husband that takes care to serve the spiritual, takes care to serve the emotional, takes care to serve the physical needs of the wife, right? This isn't self-centered this is not some sort of exercise of power. This is, this is not where the husband is going to lord authority over his wife and his family. This is the husband walking gently beside by side with his wife, living a life in Christ, a life that leads with love, and a, and a life that is easy to submit to. So then why head coverings? Why, why in the world is, is, he, is he talking about head coverings here? How does head coverings play into married couples within the church outwardly expressing God's glory? How does that happen? Where, where does this extrapolation take place? Need a little historical background to maybe get this, right? In Roman society, think about Romans, right? First thing we get a picture of, you know, I think... Um, Another a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. You know, you think about like those old movies or those old stage plays, and the guys are all wearing what? Togas, right? No, I'm not going to do it. But <laughs> the guys are all wearing togas. But this, in the time that these guys would do this, when these men would enter into their pagan temples, they would take the loose parts of their togas, and the first thing they would do as they were entering into the temple was cover their heads 
They would take that, temp, that, that toga, pull it up over their head, like, like a teenager with their hoodie, right? They would pull that thing up over their head, and they would walk in to the temples that way to pray. But these were pagan temples, right? And they were doing this as an act of piety and of reverence to a false deity, right? Paul's saying here that if a Christian man enters into corporate worship to Jesus Christ in the same manner as a pagan man enters into a worship of a pagan false deity, that man is dishonoring Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's getting at, right? And and so, so that's why men would come in and uncover. And it's funny, we were having this conversation about it being one of those things that it's, it's still kind of a, a little bit of a cultural hang, hangover, right? Like it's still there. Like from, from what kind of Paul's talking about. How many of us grew up the second you had a hat on? And, and I got to have a hat because I don't have hair to protect. And so I, I put the hat on. But as soon as it comes into the building, hat's got to come off, right? That's kind of the same kind of, kind of cultural hangover that, that's coming from this, Right? Even if we're outside, there are times in which men will always remove their hats. Anytime there's a prayer publicly outside, typically men remove their hats. National anthems sung, something like those sorts of things. We, we do that. That's kind of a, a cultural carryover from what Paul's talking about here. That, that we want to ex- show that we're, we're different than the pagans around us. Or that there's a difference between that. Right? So, so that's where this, this idea of men not covering their heads in Christian worship comes from. We want to be different than the pagans who did. Now, in this time and in this place, when a married woman appeared in public without a head covering, it brought shame to her husband. Right? The head covering itself is a symbol of being married. So for these women who were married, proclaiming their marriage, walking around without their heads covered was like saying, I'm not married. That head covering was like a modern wedding ring. And so for a woman of this era and of this place to not have her head covered was signifying that she was unmarried. It could also be signifying that she was sexually available. Right? And and you think about that. That's where the shaming of the husband will come in, right? I'm married, but I'm going to tell everybody I'm not with this physical gesture. And you think about this, especially in a society, first century Roman society, right? This society that is surrounded by pagans who worship mostly fertility gods in temples where there was frequent appearances of temple prostitutes. So Paul's, Paul's talking about, ladies, are you, are you walking into church looking like the ladies going into those temples, getting ready to do those things, and how will that honor Christ? All right? So, so Paul's really conveying to us here that as worshipers of Christ, our preparation for worship and our practice for worship and our appearance in worship is to be the antithesis, right? the opposite of what the world says around us. He's showing the, the Corinthian church that when, when you worship the one true God of all creation, you will do the opposite of those who worship at the feet of idols. 
And we need to see that. Now, in, in modern societies where women do not traditionally wear head coverings as a sign of marriage, right? There are still some modern societies where that, that is a, a traditional sign of marriage. Um, there, there needs to be some sort of kind of implication that you're married, right? So, so these modern societies where, where head coverings are not a sign of marriage, you wouldn't necessarily need to wear a head covering in your church. That's not, not okay. You wouldn't have to wear your head covering to go pray. But wearing some physical symbol of your marriage, your wedding ring, would be expected. You know, um, Amish societies, they don't wear wedding rings. The men grow a beard. That's, that's the whole purpose of the Amish beard is that to show that the men are married, right? That that's, that's their symbol for that. Um, I, I think the women change something about the, 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 he, the head covering that they wear to show that they're married. I, I, don't, I don't know how that works exactly, but, but that's there, right? That there's a physical symbol of your marriage to be out there and to be seen. Now, you know, seriously, think about this conversation today, right? Husband sees his wife. She's getting all, all gussied up, getting pretty for, for whatever she's getting ready to do. And he looks at her and goes, love, you're looking really cute tonight. You heading out? And she says back, yeah, the girls and I from church are heading out for dinner tonight. Oh, that's so sweet. That's nice. Have fun. See you later. Oh, oh, hun, hun, you, you forgot your wedding ring on the sink. Told the wife's responding back, it's fine. I'm not going to need it tonight. It just got awkward, right? That's the same thing with the head covering going into church is what Paul's getting at here. That, that, that's, that's an awkward thing, that it's not what's going on here. There's, there should be that, that symbol of your marriage. And when he looks at verses 7 through 9, he says, For a man ought not cover his head, since he is in the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man, and neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It's almost a tongue twister, right? It's this close. But what he's doing is he's taking us back to the garden here for a bit. Right? Paul's, Paul's taking us back to the garden just for a little bit. God created man, breathed life into man, made man in his own image. Then when God saw that man needed a helpmate, he created woman. How did God create woman? From the rib of a man. So, so what Paul's getting at here too is, is this head covering thing is this is about the order of creation. This is about having a high view of God and having a high view of God's creation, right? And, and, and the word glory here is, is about showing the excellence of, right? So man, by the excellence of being made in God's image, shows the excellence of God, Woman, by the excellence of being made in God's image, shows the excellence of her husband and the excellence of God. See, Paul's not, not denying at all that women are made in the image of God. He's affirming that women are made in the image of God. And he's going back to the creation story, though, to show us and to appeal to us about male headship in marriage. And he's saying that it's not just this cultural situation in first century Roman society, right? But, but it's something that God designed to be carried out through all the generations. And, and that looks like culturally, from time to time, place to place may vary a little bit. But the principle remains the same. From creation, Christ is the head of man and the man is the head of the wife. 
right? And, and for Paul, this is a gospel issue. Husbands and wives, when people see you together in public, are they going to be able to see a marked difference in your life than the worldly people around you? When, when, when you head into worship, do you look like you have prepped to bless God and to glorify Him? Right? These, these are the questions that, that should be popping up in our minds. I'm not saying that we need to bring back suits and ties every Sunday. Right? I, I'm, I'm not saying that we need to have big hats for all the ladies for Sunday worship. But I'm saying we need to be prepared to be seen as knowing God's dignity and honoring that in worship. That's what Paul's kind of calling us to. And this is tough because our modern world really struggles with the idea of, of headship and submission. It looks at these concepts as, as outdated and outmoded ways of thinking, right? And, and within the gospel, the, the, the idea of submission is dignified. In the gospel, the idea of submission is glorified. When a wife aligns herself to a husband who has aligned himself to Christ, that is not demeaning. That kind of dignity displays just it displays and it points to the beauty of God Himself. And that sets us all up for, for right worship. There's this theme and this pattern in Scripture that with regards of spiritual, Israel's spiritual health and, and how being and, and how they understood their worship. When when Israel was really seeking out God, they took worship seriously. They were meticulous about doing it right. They showed great affection with regard to their sacrifices. And they, they showed great affection to the role of the priest. And, and they really put an emphasis on the importance of Scripture being the central part of worship. But when Israel was inundated with idolatry, all of that went away. Even in their worship of the one true God, they looked more like the pagan cultures around them than what the Bible had called them to. And it calls us to question in ourselves, is God the center of my worship? Is God the center of my heart? When I come in and I'm prepared to worship, when I'm, when I'm speaking the truth about Christ, am I looking like the pagan society around me? Am I looking like the world or do I look markedly different? Do I seem changed? Verse 10, the wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, within the context of the Corinthian church, this meant that a, that a woman should wear her head covering as an outward symbol of her husband's headship and authority, right? And as Paul mentions angels, this is, this is such a weird little thing to me. He mentions angels here as well. And, and really, that's about this emphasis on having good propriety in worship. Right? The, the, the idea that, that there's a right way to worship our God and a wrong way of worshiping our God. And we need to be focused on propriety in worship here. The New Testament uses this fact that there are angels out there watching us as, as a motive for us being obedient to God. It's mentioned in 1 Timothy 5.21. It's mentioned in Hebrews 13.2. It's mentioned in 1 Peter 1.12. These are places where, where that's taking place. Paul's kind of saying that as we gather to worship and we gather to worship it becomes a holy place for us to gather to worship and there are angels watching us in our worship and and he's believing that and he's sharing that with us and he's reminding us 
to do it so that we have propriety in worship. But I want to reemphasize this, because he's talking about that headship as well. Right? The headship and authority of the husband is Christ-centered leadership. I, I can't say this enough. It, it, again, it's self-sacrificing leadership from the husband. Right? It, it, he's making sure to care for the spiritual, emotional, and physical needs of the wife. This is not self-centered. I, I want to say that again. This is not where the husband is, is lording things over the wife. It's not a power trip for him. He's walking gently side by side her, living a life in Christ that leads with love and is easy to submit to. And I, and I reemphasize this because I know that this passage of Scripture has been misused. I know that this passage of Scripture has been misinterpreted. I know that this particular passage of Scripture has been abused. And I know there are women who have suffered abuse because of it. I do not condone that. I don't condone that. And this church, Calvary Heights Baptist Church, will not tolerate that. And if you're in an abusive situation, we want to help. I want that to be clear. We want to help. If you're in an abusive situation, we will get you the help you need. Whether you're in the room or you're listening online. We want to help you on that. Because when we read this scripture, there's an emphasis on the importance of women. It's not that, that they're second-class citizens or anything like that. They, there's an importance here. We see that, that their value is image bearers of God and an emphasis on that value of their role within the church and family, that, that they are important to what takes place in our corporate worship. They are important to the ministries that take place within our church. And we need to, to encourage that and it should also be natural for us as as believers of christ that when we see men assume the roles of women and women assuming the roles of men to see that and to see it as a disgrace to god and again i'm not talking about laundry and dishes and and that sort of stuff we're talking about who teaches whom who guides whom what ministries are being done that's the sort of thing we're talking about because anything other than what God has set in order from creation disparages God. And when we as a church do things that are out of the order that he set forth in creation, we are disparaging God. And we've got to be mindful of that. Verse 16 closes out this section with a reminder to the Corinthians who want to argue against what Paul has just taught. Right? That this is standard within the churches. This is orthodoxy, as well as orthopraxy, right? This is, this is we got orthodoxy meaning this is how, or, or what we're supposed to do. Orthopraxy is this is how we do it. And Paul's saying that that's what this is, right? That this should be the standard for all Christian believers, right? That, that this is the standard the Christian behavior of the church in Corinth should conform to, as should all the churches who proclaim Christ as the Lord. So, what does that mean for us now? Right? What actions do we take? Are we ready to have little bonnets and scarves on a rack and a table back there for all the ladies who come in to pick up and, and, and come worship with us? As the Apostle Paul would say, by no means. That's not what he's going for. Right? Should we take our roles within the family and our church seriously? Absolutely. That's what we should be looking at. Should we guide younger believers through this difficult concept 
of, of being equal with your married partner, yet submissive. Yeah. With much prayer, with, with, with as much dignity as we can muster, and with all the patience the Holy Spirit can give us. Because these concepts are so foreign to those outside of Christ, or, or, or they have, new believers maybe have seen these concepts so distorted by those who claim Christ, that honestly, this is going to be a stumbling block for many. And before any of that can take place, we must check our own hearts and we must check our own souls. Do we really trust God enough to really submit our lives to Him? That means men in the church asking, am I really letting Christ be my head? Because if I'm not really letting Christ be my head, my wife has a fair argument for saying, but I'm not sure you're ready to be my head yet. Christ has made it simple. He's already got God as his head. All we have to do now is submit over to Christ. Are we really submitting our lives to him? Because everything in this passage is about the one true God of all creation, right? He is who created you. It is he who created you to experience life in him and life with him forever. But we know that the problem with our lives is that we've all of us rebelled against God. and We've not trusted him. We've not trusted his word that's been given to us. And every one of us, every one of us has turned aside from God and his word. We've turned to ourselves and to our own ways. And that is sin. Plain and simple. And the result of sin is that we are separated from God. So if we die in our sin, we are eternally separated from God. And we will spend eternity separated from him in judgment due to our sin. But the good news about this, the good news in all of this, is that God still loves us, despite our rebellious nature. He loves us enough that he has provided a way to reconcile us to him. And that way is Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is God in human flesh, came to earth and lived a life we could not live. He lived a life free of sin, even though he was tempted in every way that you and I have ever been tempted. And even though he had no sin, he chose to die on the cross to pay the price for the sins of those who come to trust him and love them and love and his love for him. Sorry. So he, he died for those who trust him and trust in his love for them. And although he physically died... He didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave in victory over sin, victory over death. And anyone who places their trust in Jesus, anyone who submits their lives to Jesus, will have eternal life with him. I invite you to turn your life over to Jesus today. I, I implore you to call out to Jesus for forgiveness, asking him to save you from your sinful nature. Start banking your hope on all that God is for you in Jesus Christ. Reach out to us here. Talk to me or Chris about becoming a follower of Christ. Take some time. If you're in the room, the, the, the altar's open. If you're at home, pray where you are. But know that when you turn your life over to Christ, 
He makes you a new creature in all things. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for tricky and difficult passages. I thank you for the fact that the gospel is present even in those, and that we can see that, that Jesus makes all things new. Father, we thank you that there is dignity in us submitting our lives to Christ as the head of the church and the head of our lives and as our Savior. Father, I pray that as we begin to kind of close up, we have this time of, of invitation and reflection that you would speak to our hearts, that you would, you would challenge us from what was here in the Word. You would draw us closer to you. And Father, if there's, there's someone out there who's, who needs to have that life-changing experience of coming to Jesus, I pray your Holy Spirit would work in them. Father, I pray that they would then reach out to us if they're listening online or if they're here wherever and start that conversation about how do I become a follower of Christ?